Uh, so today's reading is from Isaiah 53, and that'll be verses 1 to the end. Um, and that can be found on page 741 in the Church Bibles. That's Isaiah 53, uh, from verses 1 to the end, and page 741 on the Church Bibles. Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, and like a root of the dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hid their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and bore our suffering, yet we him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we healed. We were like sheep have gone, gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led to, like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of this generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Good to have you here today. My name's Dave. I'm one of the pastors uh, here at Highfields. It's a great privilege to welcome so many of you uh, to our service this morning. One of the great perks of living in a university city like Cardiff is that you get a second bite at the cherry when it comes to thinking about the start of the year. Um, someone said to me earlier that we're just less than 100 days till Christmas. I think three months exactly today uh, till Christmas Day. Uh, three quarters of the way through the year we are, but... The arrival of hundreds of fresh-faced students in our city, a new academic year, new term, the kind of buzz of new stationary orders and so forth, definitely makes, even as late as the end of September, still feel a bit like a new exercise book kind of time of life. And I always appreciate that because maybe your New Year's resolutions went out the window um, on the second week of January, but you've got a chance to reset and have a think about what am I about, what are my priorities uh, in the next year ahead. And then on top of that, of course, we've got lots of new things going on culturally. We've got a new king, King Charles III. We've got a new government and prime minister, Liz Truss. <clears throat> a new budget for um, economists to, to work through. There's a new series of Strictly on the TV. Like So much new stuff to, 
to think about. Maybe you've got new experiences of life that are just about to arrive, if not having already arrived. Maybe you've just left home. For the first time, you've been counting down the days and weeks and years maybe, and it's finally here with all the excitement and, yes, a bit of nervousness about that too. Just to say, Cardiff is an amazing city. You've come to a brilliant place to to study and to learn. Uh, We love it here. And maybe you are on the other side of the fence and a son or daughter has recently left home and, uh, or they're kind of leaving home now and you're here for, for the kind of final send-off. And uh, that's an emotional time. It's a great moment of pride and celebration, but, but sadness and wistfulness and, and 18 years pass so fast, etc. How will you face the next little while? Maybe it's the cost of living crisis that we're all hearing about all the time and you're worrying about how you know, budgets are going to kind of work through when it comes to making ends meet in the next month and the next few months. How will you get through? What should your, our, number one priority be? What should be the most important thing that we think about in the days ahead? Um, If you're open at least to asking that question, whether or not you like the answer, if you're at least open to asking the question, I'm so pleased you're here at Highfields today, um, because I believe that in God's word we have a very good answer to think about for the next uh, 25 minutes or so together. Uh, In our passage, uh, we're spending our time looking basically at one verse. And um, uh, what we're going to do, we're going to eavesdrop the Apostle Paul as he talks to the church in Corinth about what his number one priority was when he visited there for 18 months. Now we're turning to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2. It's on page 1145 of these turquoise church Bibles. Really, really worthwhile having one of these, or maybe you've got a smartphone, you can pull it up, or a tablet, something like that, but some kind of Bible in front of you for 1 Corinthians chapter um, 2, verse 2. But before we dive into that one verse, a bit of background. Uh, because, uh, God willing, over the next uh, few months, from here till Christmas, uh, we're going to be studying the book of 1 Corinthians. We were looking at it last year, last academic year, we're carrying on our series, picking up the story uh, from chapters 11 through to chapter 14. And then the plan is chapter 15, all about the resurrection, we'll be thinking about that after Christmas. Um, now, if you've never studied uh, the book of Corinthians, it's an amazing book, and Corinth was an amazing city. It was a modern, busy, bustling coastal city known for trading routes. It was a place that loved its sport and loved its music and loved its uh, nightlife and culture. It was a pluralistic city, a hedonistic city. The bright lights never went out. And it was a very religiously proud city. There were temples everywhere you looked and uh, your kind of value was measured in how clever you sounded and how powerful you looked in front of other people. Welcome to Corinth. Now the fact is that um, often we read the Bible, it seems quite distant from where we are in our lives today. But actually when you read the book of Corinthians, you think, crumb, this is very, very similar to the world we live in today. Um, And the big themes of, of, of Corinthians are, how do we live as church in the midst of all that? In the midst of a culture that could not care less about God or Jesus Christ or the Bible or, or those kind of things, um, How do we live as church in that context? And how do we face the challenge when the church kind of seeps into, uh, sorry, the world seeps into the church and and causes influence inside here? What does that mean as well? Now, uh, Corinth, if you don't know, um, it's in the middle of modern day Greece. Around 50,000 people uh, lived in it when Paul was writing. It had been um, uh, founded um, in uh, 146 BC, but was destroyed, but then rebuilt 
um, just a few years before um, Paul visited in 44 BC. And as I say, it was a very proud city. There were 26 temples throughout uh, Corinth. But alongside its religion, it was incredibly kind of wild in its living. So there were over a thousand temple prostitutes who would wander the streets at night trying to attract the latest sailor or athlete or politician to sleep with them. Um, it was kind of cross between the busyness of London with the kind of bright lights of a Las Vegas. How on earth do those things come together? How do you respond if you're God to Sin City? Well, God sends the gospel. God sends the good news, the bright light, the brightest light of Jesus Christ into this dark place. You see, there's no place too dark, too, too, no ground too hard for the gospel to not be able to penetrate and shine its light straight through. All it takes is for light to shine, for the darkness to be banished, which is great news. But the trouble is that when the gospel gets, uh, gets into contact with something so spiritually dark, it's a little bit like putting bicarbonate of soda into a bottle of vinegar, which is another children's talk, Michael, for another day. But it just goes crazy. You get all sorts of mess everywhere. Divisiveness and pride and really complex issues to do with sexuality and marriage and divorce. And maybe some spiritual issues that are confusing people like spiritual gifts and worship and And these are the topics that Paul addresses in his famous letter of 1 Corinthians. We've studied lots of those last year. We're picking up the story this year. Um, But what Paul does so well is rather than just diving into those particular issues or topics, he says, look, you need to study your context in the wider context of the gospel. How does God, how does specifically Jesus Christ make a difference into all the mess and the muck, and the challenges and the pressures that we face in our lives. That's a hugely important question, whatever you're facing today. What difference, looking through the, the, kind of the lens of Jesus Christ, how does he change everything? He does. And that's why if we study the book of Corinthians, which we have done um, and, until a few months ago, we're picking up again, the first couple of chapters focusing on the cross of Jesus Christ, the last a couple of chapters focusing on the resurrection and what it means to be people of the resurrection. And our lives are shaped between those two bookends, if you like. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at uh, just one verse, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. But to set that in context, I need to read the little bit before and the little bit afterwards. So let's uh, listen to God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 26. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it's written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And so it was with me, brothers and sisters. When I came to you, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. I came to you in weakness, with great fear and trembling. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power, so that your faith 
might not rest on human wisdom, but on God's power. Paul is looking back. He had a missions trip to Corinth for about 18 months. Um, and uh, we read about that mission trip in Acts chapter 18. Here he's reflecting on his time in Athens. And he's reflecting on what was actually a pretty scary, intimidating, challenging place. You can imagine it would have been. And he's saying what his number one priority was when he was somewhere new. And I, I just think, and as I've been praying about what to speak on, whatever your background here today, whatever you're facing in the coming weeks or months, we would do well to learn from Paul's mission statement to Corinth. And uh, it's so important that I've put it up on the screen uh, behind me, and we're going to read it all out together, if that's okay. So it's 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. So after 3, 1, 2, 3. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Just one sentence, but we're going to spend our time there and we're going to mine that sentence for all it's worth. Three key lessons jump out as we study that verse, that mission statement of Paul. First lesson, what I'm calling an undistracted resolution. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except, we'll come on to the bit after that. An undistracted resolution. Paul begins his mission statement by explaining that in order to keep Jesus as his number one priority, which is where we're going, he needed to eliminate and push away and turn down the volume of all other distractions. Because the fact is, it would have been incredibly easy to be distracted with any number of things that would vie for his attention. Now, he's not saying they're not important, but relatively turn them down. Now, the immediate context of 1 Corinthians 2 is um, he's reflecting on what would have inevitably been a emotionally grueling and a potentially threatening trip in Corinth. He explains, I came to you with weakness and great fear and trembling, he says in verse 3. Uh, and he's all too aware of his vulnerability and how little he naturally fitted in. He says, I did not come with eloquence or human wisdom. Now, you see, in Corinth, the background is that they were obsessed with smooth-talking, fine-sounding, travelling salesmen philosophers who would go around, sell their wares, and sound incredibly impressive with their toothy grins and their, their, their arguments that wowed everybody. And uh, they loved proclaiming these amazing uh, philosophies, and they loved critiquing each other and saying, oh, that was pretty good, but that was not so good. And they're a bit like kind of matter-the-day pundits, picking the bones over whatever someone had contributed and, and taking them all down. Or for those of you who are old enough, uh, like those old glo- blokes off uh, the Muppet show, Stadler and Wardorf, standing on the side, just kind of wagging their finger at how rubbish everything is. Well, compared to the rhetorical punch and the intellectual polish of these philosophers... Um, not to mention all the, the immorality that was taking place, Paul would have felt completely out of his depth. I can't compete in this kind of area. And maybe you arrive here in college and think, I can't compete with this. It's big, it's scary, I don't know my way around. Maybe you, know, you like Paul felt a little bit like Sporky from um, Toy Story 4, those of you who uh, enjoy your Toy Story movies. Sporky, remember, he's the guy, little character, um, whose sole aim in life is to jump into the rubbish bin the first time he sees it because he thinks he's so rubbish compared with how amazing everyone else is around him. And he, maybe Paul's t- completely like that. Often we think of Paul a bit like kind of a, a hero tough guy, apologetics ninja who is just never phased by anything he faces. But he would have felt the sting of being laughed at or death by a thousand paper cuts of being ignored or being squeezed down. 
He knew how hard life was, how hard ministry was. And so he commits himself to an undistracted resolution. There was nothing automatic or instinctive about what Paul was doing. He wasn't just kind of letting go and letting God and God was just going to carry him through. It's going to be totally straightforward, nice and easy. Go with the flow, see what happens. No, Paul is intentional. He's purposeful. He's, he's, he's planned. He's resolved. I just wonder whether right at the start of the year, the start of a new series, picking up the story of 1 Corinthians, I might encourage us all to make some, not New Year's resolutions, but some late September resolutions. What are you going to be about this year? It's a chance to reset, rethink, what am I going to be about this year? What's going to be number one for me this year, Lord? I don't know if you've heard of the American theologian and pastor Jonathan Edwards in the 18th century. As an 18-year-old, he wrote down 70 resolutions that he was going to be committed to all of his life. He sounded like a pretty intense guy, but this is, this is to number one. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and my own good, profit and pleasure. In the whole of my duration, without any consideration of the time, whether now or never so many myriads of ages hence. He's like, I want to do what will give God the glory, always. That's a great thing to think about. There are so many distractions, aren't there, in our lives? A constant news cycle interrupting our attention. Social media, like, like, or nudge, or the kind of constant notifications on all our devices that kind of distract us. 24-hour noise, Spotify or the radio blaring and playing. Not to mention having to keep up with friends, having to keep up with chores, having to keep up with study, etc. Can I just ask you, at the start of the year, why not find some time between now and next Sunday, maybe even today, and close the door on everything else. Maybe it's just before you go to bed, where it's just you, and you think... Lord, what am I going to be about this year? What's going to be number one? Please reset me. Help me to put the right things, the most important thing first. Will it be the academic study? It's going to be important. Will it be the musical instrument? That is surely going to be important. Or, or training for the, for the half marathon or supporting my family or taking up a new hobby or reading a great book. These are all good things in their proper place. Am I going to commit to joining a church this year? Getting stuck in serving at church? Reading the Bible again? Picking up on my Bible reading plan, which is so out of date now? The, uh, the Greek philosopher Socrates famously once said that the unexamined life is not worth living. Don't just float through life. Float through your first term at university. Oh, crumb, it's Christmas. I've got to go home now. What have I actually done? What have I been about? Well, if you're working, what am I going to be about this next term? If you're retired... What am I going to be about this term? Point one, an undistracted resolution. I encourage you to pause and make one for yourself. Well, here's our second point, an unrivaled saviour. So, let's continue our sentence. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ. So here's the key focus, the laser targeted focus. It's on Jesus Christ. The unrivaled saviour. There is no one like him. Undisputed champion. If you're going to build your life on something or someone, if you're going to go to the effort of kind of turning down the volume of other things and turning this volume up, you've got to make sure you choose the right thing. right? You don't want to kind of accidentally invest all of your life and energies in the wrong thing. That would be foolish. Supremely, can Jesus Christ... Here's the question I think that... Uh, 
I want to ask you, can Jesus Christ bear the weight of all the things you've got? Is he big enough to bear the weight of all the things you're facing right now? That's a question that the New Testament will answer for us. Is Jesus big enough? Is he big enough to bear the weight of leaving home? Or a loved one leaving home? Is he big enough to bear the weight of your marriage with its pressures? Or your singleness with its pressures? Is he big enough to bear the weight of your living hundreds of miles away from loved ones? Is he big enough to bear the weight of your funeral? Of your work? Of your engagement? Of your broken engagement? Of your miscarriage? Of your past? Is he big enough to bear the weight of your self-worth? Your shame? Your sexuality? Can he cope with all these things? Does he care about all these things? Back in Corinth, the church was under great pressure from false teaching and false emphases around the place that suggested that, okay, Jesus was pretty good, but you really needed other very impressive things on top of Jesus in order to survive. You needed to have a kind of super spiritual wisdom. Or have experienced super spiritual power. And if you had those things, well, then you're kind of going to make out. You know, Jesus is good for the, 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 the kind of the 11 plus of life. But you really need to, to graduate, do your GCSEs and get on to the big stuff. You've got to you know, turn to the, the big guns for that. Extra spiritual wisdom, extra spiritual demonstration of power. Yeah, thank you, Jesus, for getting me thus far. But when the pressure's on and the chips are down, I need reinforcements to take it from there. That is not the case. Paul wants to make it crystal clear. Christ is sufficient. He's, he's the best we can possibly imagine. You never graduate from him to add to Jesus, to take away from Jesus. So friends, right at the outset of this new end of September year, put Jesus front and centre and commit to never moving on from him. Doing all you can to get to know him, to get to love him, to get to serve him. He is so worthy. He's so worth all of our love and our worship. Is friends? Is he big enough to deal with your life and your death and everything in between? Can he cope with it all? Does he care about it all? Yes, 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 he does. Absolutely, friends, he does. Paul is urging his readers to grasp the glory of Jesus. When I was with you, I was resolved to know nothing except Christ. He's my only hope when I go on a battlefield, on a mission trip. When I'm all on my own and people are leaving me and people are mocking me and accusing me. He's all I need. There is no one bigger. There is no one greater. There's no one more glorious. There's no one more worthy of basing your life on than him. Who is Jesus? Maybe you're not aware of who Jesus is. He's a name. You've examined him or thought about him. Why don't we put one hand in 1 Corinthians and turn over a couple of pages to Colossians chapter 1. This is verse This is on page 1182 of our church Bibles, 1182. And here Paul (coughs) riffs on the most beautiful truths about Jesus Christ. He just lets rip on how glorious Jesus is. And this is the Jesus that he is resolved to knowing nothing other than him. Four verses from Colossians 1, 15 to 18. Let me read them. The Son, that's Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. 
whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He's before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Let's ram our pockets with all we can find about Jesus in these verses. Jesus, Paul's saying, didn't pop into existence at the first Christmas. He predates the first Christmas day. Indeed, he predates the first day. He called the first day into existence. That's why Paul calls him, actually, the Son. That's why Paul's way of referring to the eternal pre-human existence of Jesus Christ in eternity. Just imagine that in eternity past. In his timing, in God's, in Jesus' presence. What should I do today, Dad? I know I'm going to create time. I'm going to create creation. And he makes it all. Pops into being. Planets, protons, prawns, people. He makes it all. We're all made at the express command of Jesus Christ. All things that are visible, yes, and all things that are invisible. The spiritual world made by Jesus. The things in heaven, the things on earth made by Jesus. Presidents and popes and princes and politicians and paupers. We're all here by the command of Jesus. Creation testifies to the one who created the Grand Canyon in its beauty. Niagara Falls in its power, the Great Barrier Reef in its wonder. Made by the intelligent design of King Jesus Christ, which means all of creation is imbued with the most wonderful honour and dignity, not to mention purpose. Contrary to the wisdom of, of our current age, to quote uh, Glenn Scrivener, who's coming to speak to us in a few weeks' time, we are not, I quote, the flotsam of a cosmic explosion or mere biological survival machines, wet robots clinging to an insignificant rock, hurking through a meaningless universe towards eternal extinction. You're better than that. We're better. We're bigger than that. God has made us in his image. All races made by Jesus. All people made by Jesus. Male and female made by Jesus. Born and unborn made by Jesus. Everything that exists in the entire creation is made by him and for him. Jesus, Paul says here, is the firstborn over all creation. That means that one day he will inherit all creation. It was made for him. He's creation's source. He's creation's goal. Does he care what happens in his world? Of course he cares about what, he's, what happens in his world. It's his inheritance. Do you care about your future inheritance that you're going to get one day? Maybe. Of course you care about it. And he cares about you. We are his prized possession. He's not blasé, careless, thoughtless about anything in his world. He's so concerned about what goes on in his world, then he gets his hands dirty, so to speak, the day-to-day running of it. So in Colossians chapter 1, verse 17, we're told, he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. In other words, the world exists. It continues to exist. The, the ink on the page of the Bible only stays there because of the, the word of Jesus Christ. Otherwise, it would fly off into outer space. It's a breathtaking verse. It tells me that my life is in his hands. It tells me that your life is in his hands. Whoever you are, it tells me that the rising and falling of presidents and kings and queens, the energy crisis, the war in Ukraine, it's in his hands. Do you believe that? Friends, do you believe that? What comfort that gives you if you believe that? Nothing will happen to me or to us or to our nation or to our church, or our world, without the express say-so of our sovereign King, Jesus Christ. Why, why, why would he? 
He's the Lord of creation. He made it all. He's going to own it all. He holds it all together. So is he big enough to cope with elderly parents who live miles and miles away? Yes, he is. Is he big enough to cope with wayward children or siblings? Of course he is. Is he big enough to cope with my degree? Living hundreds of miles away from mum and dad and feeling lost at sea. Of course he is. Can he cope with it? Does he care about my chronic back pain or my anxiety at bedtime or my doubts or my struggles or my failures or my self-esteem, my marriage, my phobias, my dreams? Does he care? Can he cope? Can he not cope, friends? Of course he copes. Of course he can care. He's the Lord of all. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except knowing him, knowing Jesus. That is why Paul's life is based on Jesus. Friends, I wonder, is, is your life based on Jesus too? Is he you know, supreme in the numbers of things that are going on in your life, as Michael so powerfully showed to the children earlier? I think if, if, you, if you're not sure about that question, now is a brilliant time to dig into it. We've already heard of, uh, from Toby, who uh, came to put his trust in Jesus when he was at university. And I would encourage you, and I'm sure he would encourage you as well. University is an amazing time, if that's you, to think about Jesus Christ. Maybe for the first time as a thinking adult. Until now, it's just been, you do it because mum and dad tell you to do it. Now it's you. You could come to church, you don't have to come to church. You could go to Bible study, you don't have to. You could go to a Bible study course where we talk about who Jesus is. We're going to start running those in a few weeks' time. I encourage you to think about doing so. Come, come in a couple of weeks' time to our event weekend with Glenn Scriven as we think about the, the impact that Jesus Christ has made in our culture. For he is an unrivaled saviour. Which brings us to our third and our brief point, uh, our third lesson. We've seen an undistracted resolution, unrivaled saviour, and thirdly, an unlikely salvation. Let me uh, read out our whole verse. I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, if you have been a Christian for a long time, or have been in church circles for a long time, that sentence rolls off the tongue Yep, that's fine. If you're new to Christianity, maybe you've been dragged along by a friend here this morning or your first time in in an adult church service rather than in Sunday school, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. What is that about? Well, friends, our passion um, is, I think, lines up very nicely with Paul's passion in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you want to turn back there if you've you've lost it. Our passion here at Highford is not just uh, the man, Jesus Christ, but... The mission of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus didn't just come to be looked at. He didn't come to inspire good in us. No, he came actually to pay for the bad in us. Naturally speaking, we, we don't like him getting involved. The idea of being in his hands, often we're like, get off me, Jesus. I want to live my life my way. I want to leave home and experience the world. Unfortunately, that's been humanity's impulse since the beginning of time to tell God to get out of it and that has led to really a fracturing of the world and the world not being the, the free glorious place that it's, it's a cracked up to be but it's a broken cracked up world where lives are cracked up and families are cracked up and emotions cracked up societies, peace talks, ice caps cracking up all as a result of us having turned our backs on the God who made us and who loves us. But God's word 
promises that Jesus Christ is going to reconcile all things one day. He's going to put the world back together. It's going to be restored to an even better than ever before place. And 1 Corinthians 15 describes the great future, resurrection of all things that we can anticipate. But the way he does that, the, the way to resurrection is via the cross, which is a striking thing. I would say it's an unlikely salvation. Who would have thought that victory... And life would come through death. Who would have thought that death could be swallowed up in victory? Who would have thought that a broken world could be fixed by a broken saviour? A world that has turned its back on God would be redeemed by, dare I say it, God turning his back on his son. Which is what takes place when Jesus died on the cross. Maybe you've, again, you've been in... You've come for the first time, you've heard of the cross of Jesus Christ, you don't know how it works. The message of Christianity is that Jesus Christ, having lived perfectly all of his time on earth, went on to die. Not due to the fact that he had done wrong, but despite the fact that he had never done anything wrong. And he had never turned his back on his father, yet he separated from his father for. And dies on a cross. He dies on a cross to pay the debt of all those who turn their back on him. All who spoil God's world. He's paid for it all. And as we say, sorry Lord Jesus for, for living for me. Please forgive me. I want to come back to you. He'll say, yeah, I'll, I'll have you back. I'll welcome you back. And one day I'll make the world a place where you would want to live forevermore. Uh, we've already um, uh, spoken about uh, Monday's very powerful funeral of, of uh, the late Queen. If you haven't had a chance to see it, I'd encourage you to check it out on iPlayer. But I think one thing that the Archbishop of Canterbury so movingly said uh, was the following. Let me quote. We will all face the merciful judgment of God. We can all share the Queen's hope which in life and death inspired her servant leadership. Service in life, hope in death, all who follow the Queen's example and inspiration of trust and faith in God can with her say, we will meet again. The fact is, we will all one day face the merciful judgment of God. We'll have to give an account for how we've lived our lives. But we can receive his grace and his forgiveness at that point if in our lives we've said, sorry for what I've done, please forgive me. Would you change me and welcome me into your family? And he will do. It's an offer available to any who will come. Look, I'm thrilled that you're here at Highfields with us today. What are we about here as a church? It's my prayer that we will be about what Paul was about in Corinth. And uh, of that we can be absolutely certain, for he tells us as plainly as the nose on our face, look down again at 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Over my sabbatical this last uh, summer, I uh, have been listening to uh, the very large double volume autobiography of Charles Spurgeon. I'm not sure if you've read those books. They're published by the Banner of Truth. Enormous, great big uh, volumes. But I had a chance to listen to them on Audible and loved what I was listening to. Uh, because there I heard that Charles Spurgeon, who, if you haven't heard of him, an amazing Victorian preacher. He became the pastor of New Park Street Chapel, aged 19. Went on to become the pastor of the Metropolitan Tabernacle, just in South London. And by the time he died, there were 5,000 church members who loved Jesus as a result of his amazing ministry. And God's Spirit really worked powerfully through him. Uh, we're told Spurgeon preached between four and ten times a week. He uh, read 80 books a week and uh, in his spare time wrote about 150 books himself. Like the guy was incredible. 
But he was, what was his secret? What's his passion? This is what he said at the very start of his ministry at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Quote, I would propose that the subject of the ministry of this house, as long as this platform should stand, and as long as this house shall be frequented by worshippers, shall be the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus absolutely central at the start. And here are his last words from the Met Tab. Let me quote you. It is heaven to serve Jesus. I'm a recruiting sergeant and I would fain find a few recruits at this very moment. Every man must serve somebody. We have no choice as to that fact. Those who have no master are slaves to themselves. Depend upon it. You will either serve Satan or Christ. Either self or the saviour. You'll find sin, self, Satan and the world to be hard masters. But if you will wear the clothing of Christ, you will find him so meek and lowly of heart that you will find rest unto your souls. He is the most generous of captains. There never was like his among the choicest of princes. He's always to be found in the thickest part of the battle. When the wind blows cold, he always takes the bleak side of the hill. The heaviest end of the cross lies ever on his shoulders. If he bids us carry a burden, he carries it also. If there is anything that is gracious, generous, kind and tender, yea, lavish and super abundant in love, you will always find it in him. These 40 years and more I have served him. Blessed be his name and I have had nothing but love from him. I would be glad to continue yet another 40 years in the same dear service here below if it so pleased him. His service, Christ's service, is life and peace and joy. Oh, that you would enter on it at once, God help you to enlist under the banner of Jesus, even this day. Amen. For I resolved to know nothing while I was with you, except Jesus Christ and him crucified. So at the outset of a new academic year, as we reset, can I ask you, what will be your resolution, your number one aim, your priority? Can I urge you to consider it being Jesus? You'll find no better than him. Let's have a moment of quietness and then I'll pray. Now my heart's desire is to know you more. To be found in you and known as yours. To possess by faith what I could not earn. All surpassing gift of righteousness. Lord Jesus Christ, knowing you is indeed the greatest thing. We pray that we would know you and we would know your cross and your resurrection and its power in our lives. And of all the many things that could distract us this year, give us the focus and the attention to turn down the volume of all else but you. Help us to fit the rest of life in around you. Please receive the glory in our lives, we ask. For your good and our pleasure until we see you face to face. And we pray in Jesus' precious name. Amen.